ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. So here we are. It's a Books of the Year podcast from yes. your friends at Books of the Year. And where the hell have you been? Well, I I think we need to do a bit of a recap um, because I, yes, I have been away uh, a couple of times, but then I was available and you weren't available because of your uh, cough. Yeah. uh, Which is mostly gone now. It's There's still remnants of it there. Um, And then I was not available. And then I am available, so here I am. Oh, right. So there you go, you see. It's a very good thing. Yeah, yeah. So um have you have you still got your horse? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, you no. sold your horse. Yeah, the, the horse that was never a horse and the horse that's that's gone. Has so it? yeah, so, so if I need some discounted jodpers. I'm afraid your that that time has come and very much gone. Really? Uh so yes, uh anyone who's after any spurs or whips or anything like that, I'm afraid uh I can't help you at all. But um I think we do I think we do need to do a bit of a recap. So Okay. And here's the other thing because I did want to ask you, I was going to ask you this offer, but I'm now going to ask oh, you okay. on air. Uh, well, no, this is great because you spent last week in Cannes. Yes. This is, is to do with your book, or not your most recent one, but to do with Itch. Yeah. So, all oh, right. Okay. Oh, good. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Itch, which is the first book that I wrote many years ago, was has been made into a TV series by ABC, the Australian yeah. Broadcasters. And they have said it in Albany, Western Australia, rather than in Cornwall. It has a similar kind of mining heritage, so it you know it, it works it works very well. And in in Cannes, there's this thing called MIPCOM, which is a festival of television. Whereas if you've got a TV show to flog, then other broadcasters are there, and they go, oh well, we need a cartoon, or we need a live action series, or we need a crime drama. Uh huh. So the whole of the south of France, the whole of Cannes was awash with people trying to sell TV programs. So what were you... There's a new Van der Valk starring Mark Warren. What? I know. You'd have thought they might have a Dutch actor, but no, okay. it's Mark Warren. Apparently not. Anyway. So so what were you doing? That was, were you like in a room saying, and this is where the idea came from kind of thing? Yeah, kind of, yes. Yeah. And I was the only English guy there because all the others were Australian because it's their show because they uh-huh. it. So I was there to say, this is where it came from. This is the original idea. What a great idea it is. Yes. And, to, you know, with French television and with Canadian television and with American television. Uh, yeah. yeah so, that, so that was quite fun. Very interesting. Yeah. It was. I do recommend it. Going but to nice, Cam. nicely diverted. Yeah, well anyway. done. Yeah, some of the correspondence which comes into us at Books of the Year at uh, Yahoo.com. Yes, that's the email. Well done. We're and a year in. You can tweet well us at Books of the Year. 
Oh, and, and just to mention, if you have just joined us, because I know we've been a little bit slack because of we Matt have. Yeah, and oh, his horse. Not entirely me. You can check out um, our extensive and rather lovely back catalogue of shows on iTunes. Ian Rankin, Heather Morris, Robbie Williams, Jung Chung, you missed her. I did, yeah. Uh, I read, you read book, the book. Though. Yeah, I did, yeah. Is any good? I um, There was lots of great stuff in there, wasn't there? I it have was. to say, if I wasn't reading it for this podcast by page 50, I might have... Try and uh, sell it a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Graham, Graham Norton, Sebastian Folks, Parkinson, who was on it, Matt Hay, Kate Atkinson, yeah. uh, Lee Child, who's going to be on again very, very soon. Lee Child's coming back on. Yes. Brilliant. Yes. Superb. Uh, they're good for when you're at a nice long pony trek. Oh, yes. I'm sure they are. Not that I care about the ponies anymore. Just have one headphone in, though, because, you know, then you can hear traffic coming up behind you. What? Also, if you're a teacher or parent and have read some excellent writing from a youngster, we'd be very keen to hear from you. You can email books of the year at yahoo.com. We've got an Instagram thing. It's called Pick Any Page. And we ask our guests to read from their new book. You can watch all their deliveries at Pick Any Page. And that will feature our latest guest, who is... George Allagai. George Allagai, who's doing it right now, as That's we right. speak. Yeah. We can see him doing it. Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a bit nervous about reading in public, okay. I think. And uh, Lee Child is coming up, and Malcolm Gladwell is... Oh, up, I'm so looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yes, indeed. So, um, we had... So, Young Chang was on... She, I, I heard the podcast. Yes. It was very good, I thought. Thank you. Excellent. Really, really good. And uh, I did it. I mean, I did. I thought there were some really interesting elements to that. Uh, Paul, uh, <laughs> Paul said to us on Twitter, "Come on, you two, get it together. At least we've had the cricket and Brexit to keep us occupied," which is which is true. Paul Crows rhymes with bulldozer. Hurrah! I can't remember when we were allowed to put the heating on, though. No, well, you're not allowed to put the heating on until the clocks go back. Here's the thing: which... we've had we've had sort of work done in the house, and the heating uh... is great. You we've got uh, underfloor heating. Oh, you've got underfloor heating. Yes. How very Roman of you. Yes, that's yes. right. It's very, oh, very Roman. Dear. I do recommend it. So is there no heating on in There's your no house? There's no heat. Well, there probably is heating on right now. When you're not in. When I'm not in, it's only when I go back in and, and flick it to off. Thermostat. Because... Uh, it's a thermostat. The po- whole point of a thermostat is when it gets cold, the heating comes on. No, the, the whole point... Yes. Uh, well, no, you because you have the thermostat on even when you're out. Which, which to me says that you're basically keeping it warm for the burglars. That's all you're doing. It's absolutely disgraceful. No one has got their heating on until the clocks go back. I think we all agree on that. All no. reasonable people you're the only agree one. with me on that. Uh, Neil Storton says, Hooray, sugar, sugar lumps all round. Aha! Uh, is that to do with it's a me? horsey reference. Yeah, horsey. No more of those. Brilliant. If you want to annoy Matt, just write in about horses. Your favourite horse, yes. horses that you've seen, stories about Raymond Brooks Ward. Raymond Brooks Ward. Da, 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 da. No, that's Steve. No, the uh, show jumping on television. Raymond, oh, dress. right, okay, the commentator. Yes. Yes, right, okay. Not the name of a horse. No, no. Uh, on the Young Chung programme, um, oh, well, says Raylene Roper. That's my commute to work sorted in the morning. Wild Swans is my absolute favourite book. Very excited to hear about Young Chang's new book, even if Matt's not. Well, no, there were lots Get of great things it. in it. Um, Neris says, really enjoyed listening to this. And Young Chang's own story piqued my interest too. Mm-hmm. It must be difficult not being able to visit her mother very often. Going to have to steal Wild Swans from my aunt's bookshelf, I think. I really enjoyed Wild Swans. That was a, I, I really like that. It's too late now. Sorry. 
Sandra Golding, good to hear you back. Simon, a couple of questions. What will happen first, Brexit or your next podcast with Matt? <laughs> As it turns out, the it podcast. Is. Yeah, yeah. Is Matt really working on Brexit and is too busy to do the show so we'll return in November? No, I came back in October, earlier than, than expected. So, you know, there's that. That, yes, that is yeah, you know yeah. that that is very true. Yeah, I'm a regular podcast listener, mainly to BBC podcasts. I have a question about Simon's books. Graham Norton Good. often mentions his novels, and I've just heard an interview with George Alagaya with Steve Steve Wright. Steve Wright, disgraceful. I thought, it, uh, yeah, I mean, surely she should be referring to a podcast that isn't out yet. You'd have thought. Why is it that Simon isn't allowed to mention his books and gets birdsong if he mentions it when talking to Mark? So this is on the five lines. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. What would happen if the books got made into a movie? Would you be allowed to review them? Well, that is interesting, actually, because... If you're doing if you're doing your own show on the BBC, you cannot talk about your own product because there you are clearly advertising yourself and you benefit financially, but you can go on someone else's show. That's the deal. Okay, so what would happen? Obviously, you do the movie show on Five Live, so my blood stirring. If that becomes if that becomes a movie, then I don't know what would happen. But I wouldn't be doing the review. Well, you'd have to. No, you wouldn't be doing the review. I'd but you'd stand do... behind Mark, and if he doesn't like it, I'll smack his face. <laughs> Is that allowed? Yeah. No, that's that's perfectly fine. Uh, anyway, Sandra, thank you very much indeed. Recommend a book for us. Recommend any book. Any book. Right. Oh, my goodness. While you're thinking about it, I'm going to recommend yes. Philip Pullman's The Secret Commonwealth, which, uh, is the yeah. new, which is the second book in the Book of Dust okay. trilogy. And I'm half, I took it to Cannes, uh, as you do, even though it was a little bit too heavy, as in, you know, there's a lot of it. Yeah. But it's great to be back in, in Lyra's world. That's my recommendation. Okay. Mine is, this is going to be a really obvious one, um, but it's it is, old horses. It is it's, it's nothing to do with horses, uh, but... Liverpool? No, it's nothing to do with Liverpool either. It's just the last book I recommended to someone. And I basically gave, because they they were around at our house, and I said, you should have this book. And so she took the book. And it's The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, uh, which is really good. Don't bother going to see the film. The film is awful, but the book is really, really good. Uh, Peter Gedge rhymes with Nita Hedge. What? Uh, This one kept me on my toes. A mixture of Agatha Christie, Groundhog Day, and a bit of Potter. Anyway, the constantly changing characters within bodies and chopping timelines leads to your mind playing gymnastics to keep up. And that is a book that I can't see. The Stuart Turton. The seven. It's in a photocopy of the cover. It's the seven deaths of something or other. The seven deaths of. Oh, is it? Why don't you just write it in the in the message? <laughs> don't put the picture in there because I can't read the picture. Evelyn, but anyway, it's really the good. Seven deaths of Evelyn. Of Evelyn War. Evelyn, no, Evelyn Hardcastle. Yeah. Evelyn Hardcastle. I'm not sure that's the name. I have I, it with 19 in the so 80s. So tiny. We can't read this. No, sorry. Uh, so, yes, so great, great uh, recommendation, Peter Jedge. Could be Hedge, could be Jedge. Rhymes with Nita Hedge. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, thank you for uh, for rejoining us here at Books of it's the Year. It's a pleasure. I'm Stand, so happy. Not you, just oh, the right. listener. <laughs> Stand by for George Alagaya. Okay, so Books of the Year, uh, kicking in now with uh, a new book from George Alagaya, who has written The Burning Land. All right, George? Yeah, I'm very, good, thanks. Very nice, very nice to see you. George just tried to take my pen uh, to write some notes. And I insisted on having my pen back. You do like to have your pen. Yeah. I can't, well... You're holding it, you're gripping it quite hard. Yeah, it's yeah. the same. He can't speak on the radio without having a pen in, their hand, in, in his hand. What is I, that about? I don't know. Is it like a cigarette alternative? I, I, I never really smoked. Very much. I had to have a particular pen when I was a reporter. 
And I can remember in Zambia, I was there once, we'd done an interview, we were heading to the airport, and we had to go back and get it. We had to go back and get that pen. Because wow, you're like I, the Elton John of, <laughs> of, of journalism. Well, yes. well, what, 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 what does he have to do? Oh, no, there's a great story. Piano? Of, I mean, Elton John, you know. There so, are a few stories. So many stories. But I yeah. spoke to a promoter, someone who worked with him on the promotions team for the yeah. record company, and he'd left his sunglasses behind in, I don't know, Italy. And they were back in the UK, and she had to go back to the restaurant in Italy uh, to, get, to yeah. get his sunglasses. Wow. You know? no. So, yeah, that's like that. no, But pen's yeah. quite important, though. This is one I take my notes but with. Why was it... But any pen would do. No, it was. Um, can I mention the? Yeah, podcast? It, was yeah. Podcast. it was. It was, yeah, yeah. It was a, a lamey. It was yellow, and the thing about those lamies is they had really good clips. Oh, yeah. And they would stay on you because you, you know, you're in Rwanda or Afghanistan or wherever, and you're just in a shirt. You haven't got any pockets, and you should just really be firm. And then it was just like it became a sort of security thing. But it, yeah, that's what it is, isn't it? It's it's psychological. Yeah, totally. So I the, I always a buyer would have been fine. I yeah, but not really. Cause I wouldn't. This is a Muji pen, and I they're like I've just used that. It's very fine tip. That wouldn't work for me because I really press. Well, you're not having it, mate. <laughs> so, so that's not just, an offer. No, that's just the way that goes. But uh, so anyway, I've got it in my hand. Matt's got nothing in his hand, but no, he's got no, a hot no. chocolate, freeform jazz. Uh, he's obviously very confident, clearly <clears throat> content in yeah. his own skin. All yeah, that sort of stuff. misguided. I think. <laughs> uh, George's book is is the Burning Land. So it's your first novel. You've written uh, many books before, based on your uh, experience as a journalist and travels around the world. Why did you think that uh, a novel would be a good thing to do. What was the? I mean, the way the way you asked that question. What on earth? <laughs> no, it makes okay. it sound like I shouldn't. But so, let me, let answer, me re, George. Right. Let me rephrase that. You're a senior BBC journalist. Uh, okay, George Allen, guys. So this is uh, this is your uh, fiction debut. What what gave you the idea? All right. Well, we my answer. I'm going to answer the way you asked it the first time, which sounded like an accusation. <laughs> Sorry about that. Which I don't think there's that big a contradiction between doing what I used to do or what I still do, actually writing. Uh, um, as a journalist and writing as I can barely bring myself to say it, but as a novelist, because I think this, the burning land and, and fiction in general kind of fills in the spaces between the reports. There's so much, I mean, especially in, t in telly, you know, you're lucky. Well, when I was doing it anyway, it used to be about one minute 45 mm. on the news at six. And there's, you know, my notebooks used to be full of ideas and thoughts and so on that just never work on telly, never work in news report because they're about about all the other things that lead people to do stuff, you know, love and lust and prejudice and um, anger, frustration, revenge, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you couldn't put it in news report, so I put it into 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 fiction. Are you saying that it, in a way, it's more truthful? Yes, actually, I get, well, put it this way. I think journalism is about facts and facts aren't always, don't always add up to the truth. You can have several facts, but you still might not get to the truth of a story, a truth of something that's happening. So, yeah, I think there's an extra dimension in fiction um, that storytelling can get you to places that you can't do with journalism. I definitely felt that with writing this. Okay, Matt, does, well, tell, tell us about the cover. Yes, so very compelling cover. It's a blend of gold and red and black, but mainly gold. And uh, what I thought initially was like a, one of those murmurations you get of, of birds. Starlings. In a, yeah, exactly. But it's not that, I've worked out. It's, it's definitely it's, not that. It's definitely not that. It's, a, it's, a, it's that sort of steam coming off something that's very hot. Am I right on that? No, no. What what is it then? Well, it's, it's a flame. Oh, it's a flame. Is it? Well, there you go. Almost the same. It looks nothing. Yeah, almost exactly I think the that's same. Quite as obvious, steam. isn't it? Is it steam? I thought it was a silk. 
Silk? Well, it could be. Somebody, somebody has said that before. Okay. But I mean, the, the no one is, has said it. The clue no, is in the burning, guys. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's what I was about and to it's, say. And it's red hot at the bottom <laughs> and, and, sort of, and sort of slightly orange and then yellow. So what is clearly uh, a flame dominates the uh, front cover of this book, The Burning Land this in is White. A good start. It's great. Uh, George Allagaya in black. South Africa is ablaze, but who started the fire? So uh, that's a Billy Joel song. It is. Almost. Yeah. Not me. Um, so presumably, with all your expertise in Africa and in Southern Africa, there was something about what is going on now in South Africa that yeah. made you think, I want to tell this story. So, Well, so I was there in South I was based there for the BBC in the Mandela years, 94 to 98, Rainbow Nation, Miracle Nation, a time of reconciliation, optimism, they won the World Cup, you know, amazing. Um, you know, Ellis Park, full of white people, Afrikaners shouting Nelson, Nelson, Nelson. It's a fantastic time. You know, wind the tape forward and you have what's uh, South Africans called state capture, which is, in other words, that the state has been captured by unscrupulous business people or an uh, alliance of unscrupulous business people and and corrupt politicians. Um, and I wanted to fill that gap. I wanted to, I wanted to try and look at how that how that happens. And I chose the perhaps the most evocative thing of all in South Africa, which is land. You know, in the end, that whole struggle was about ever since Van Riebeck turned up. Then was it sixteen fifty two? I don't know if this is true. I, I think it is true. Van Riebeck turns up in sixteen fifty two. Very shortly afterwards, he he planted a bitter almond hedge, and apparently, you can see it still in Kirstenbosch botanical gardens but it was a way of separating the little white community from from what were then you know the, the what we call the sand people the so-called bushmen so you know it's been a theme this this control of land ever ever since then and the great you know the great struggle the struggle of freedom was about land and lo and behold i'm imagining a situation here where that land is now being sold off to the to the highest bidder and just to go back to what simon was saying i mean this is not, I mean, the bit about competition for land is not fiction. You know, people are calling it land grad, people are calling it a new colonial. This is going on. Rich people in rich countries are looking for land in poor countries because they haven't got enough land to grow food and so on. China's at it, the Gulf kingdoms are at it, and, you know, private equity, kingpins, all sorts of people. So I'm imagining this going on, this, this competition for land and this corrupt sale of land, this most evocative thing, this birthright thing, you know, that's what freedom was about being sold off to highest bidder against the wishes of local communities and looking at two people essentially who come and try and try and deal with that. So so just one more point on that before Matt. People might have in their heads a kind of Zimbabwean land grab from the government taking it back from the white farmers. No. And that's not what you're talking about at no. all, is it? It's far more complicated because it's about who owns the farmland and cooperatives and then they get together and then they're selling it out to can you just yeah. do it a little so, bit about so see, who's the threat where's the threat coming from? Right. The interesting thing is Apartheid used to be easy. White people against black people, right? And white people equals bad, black people equals good. Well, guess what? It turns out rich white people and rich black people are pretty much the same. They're interested in profits. And they can screw screw other people just like, you know, white, black people can screw white, white people and black people just as much as white people used to do the same. So that's the complicated bit. And here what's happening is, is that there are a group of... Of, of rich black South Africans, um, they're, they're called the Black Diamonds, who realise there's money to be made. If they can be the middle people and sell off the country's land, this birthright, to whoever wants to buy it from abroad, and they're selling it from under the feet, literally, the soil on which people 
people walk, literally under the feet of, of, of small rural communities who are powerless. Supposedly, people who thought it was all about them, the struggle. Okay. And so who are those people who are buying? Because in the book, you, I, it's, uh, it's a mixture of Russians or is people from the UAE or it's uh, people based in London. Where, where in real life is that, is that threat coming? Well, in real life, I mean, um, there's, there's certainly some evidence. I think that China's doing it. Some Indian companies are doing it. There are, there are um, just rich uh, venture capitalists and so on in, in our country doing it. I mean, and then what I was going to say, the thing about journalism and, and fiction is that this is a story that I and producers and other journalists have tried to nail down. I mean, there are books about it. I mean, I haven't made it up uh, and I'm not the first. But I tried to nail it, nail it as, as, as a TV journalist, came close, but never actually managed. I did a little bit in Sri Lanka, and that was the military taking land and making money out of it off people, but never actually managed to nail it. So now I'm able to nail it by making it up. So here's what I'm interested in, though. You have a character in the book, and I think it's a, I think it's a taxi driver mentions this at one point, um, because one of your uh, main characters, Lindy, starts yeah. talking about this. And, it's, and, and you've already sort of alluded to it, this, uh, this idea that back in the sort of the, the 80s, it was very easy, black people good, white, per- white, yeah. white South African bad. And she brings this up as saying, you know, how, how that promise has been thrown away because we now have these black rich people who are taking advantage. And the taxi driver turns around and says, so you'd rather it was just white people who are making money? Then. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so pleased you, you picked that on that because, I mean, it's one of the more subtler points in the book, but it's really, really important. You know, us liberals progressives, we like to think of ourselves, you know, it's sort of, we like our blacks to be kind of noble and poor and dignified. And somehow when they get all uppity and get, get, you know, effing rich, um, it's like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. It's meant to be, you know, and and the taxi driver, that's, you know, he says, you know, you're you're making the same mistake everybody else does. You know, you like the, the black people to be, to be a certain way. Actually, this is what our freedom was about. We're proud, he says you know, that a black man can get rich. That was also part of the struggle, you know, that, that, that black people should end up becoming billionaires. The book starts, uh, it starts with a murder. Can you tell us about the, the boy who is the man who is murdered and and how, and then Lucy, and then we get Lindy and then we get uh, Kagiso coming in. So, just, But just explain who it is who dies at the beginning. So there's a character called Lesedi, Lesedi Motlanchi. Now, he is a child, if you like, of the time. He's born in, in, in the 80s while his father is in prison and his life mirrors the changes in South Africa. So born in the old South Africa and becomes a symbol and emblem, if you like, um, a, a mascot, if you like, for, for, for the new South Africa. Um, and he, he goes, he, he, I mean, I, I, I made this up, but there's a, there's a time he, TV crew comes along to his school and says, hey, you know, can you define racism? And this is a black kid, remember? And he says, well, you know, racism is like, you know, if I point my finger at Simon and, and, and say, you know, call him whitey and so on, that's racism. So he's kind of, he's so free of the old rules about racism that he can see white people as a victim. So that's, he becomes a symbol of the rainbow nation. But he is caught up in this whole battle between a corrupt elite and 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 people who are trying to stop the sale of land, and he's a victim of it, and he dies. Well, you hear about his death in kind of page two, I think it is. Yeah, other is page one. Anyway, so oh. uh, so then well, no, there's a preface before that. Uh, okay. uh, that it'll be page, <clears throat> page All right, three. So, I mean, so literally, yeah. you might just <laughs> okay. Gonna... Technically, you might be right. <laughs> I'm going to check. But this. There, is it it's, it's in chapter one? Oh yeah, you're right. Prologue in chapter one. one. Yes, oh, it's actually page four. There you go. There you go. There you go. It's chapter one. Chapter one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's what I was up to. So, is is the prologue not numbered? 
Yes, the prologue is numbered, but it's wow. a prologue. It hasn't... This is really technical. Okay. This All is right. so fascinating. These things really matter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Matt has mentioned Lindy, where she fits in, and is it Kagiso? Yeah, Kagiso. Uh, Kagiso. So, so they have they have very interesting story together, uh, which develops as these stories do, but introduces to them. So, so Lindy. I mean, the thing about it, Lindy, is she is. I, in my head, that's where the book started, actually. This idea, this... So Lindy is uh, uh, a woman. She is the daughter of white parents who had lived in South Africa, white South Africans who came to Britain in exile, as so many of them did in the 80s and 90s. And she's a complicated character because um, she sees her parents talking about the struggle. Hey, we were in the struggle, you know. And she looks at them and says, really? You live in kind of Stoke Newington and you're a part of the struggle? No, you're not. You're here. You, you got out. So she's quite cynical about, uh, about that. Um, the other side of her is she's also in her family. You know, her father's very expansive, you know, big sort of South African with, you know, gen- generous with words and with food and with booze and that kind of thing. And she's the careful one and diffident one in the family. Her brother also can make friends like that. Lindy, it takes a long time. And the book is really, and, and why I say she, she, she was in my mind, the first character, is through the book she changes. And she does that thing that I think all of us can do, is that at home we're constrained by expectation, by custom, by convention. And you go abroad and you can explore a different side of you. And, and she finds her profession. She works for something called the South Trust in the book and that they're into conflict resolution, big organisation, quite well respected because they can do stuff that people like the United Nations can't. And she's sent to South Africa. And as she goes there, so the, the, she goes there to South Africa to discover the two sides to try and mediate, but she also discovers herself, this other side of herself. And I was fascinated by that, by, by what, what could happen. Kahiso, yeah. who she meets when she gets there, <clears throat> is actually the son of their house worker. When she was growing up in South Africa, Kahiso's son, he's now, he had been in the ministry, a big high flyer, but sees the light and starts working for a very small charity among rural poor people. And they these people have turned out to be the victims in this in this fight for land in fact it's their land that's sold away and he begins to defend them they come together they see an interest at first professional uh, later sort of personal and together they've got you know a matter of days in which to in in which to uncover things find out who, who committed this murder that i was talking about and 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 try and stop the land sales going to talk more with george alagaya about his novel the burning land after this Uh, this is Books of the Year. George Alagaya is here uh, with The Burning Land. During the during our break, I was having a cough and you were just telling me to make sure... Well, I'm no, what worried me is you said you'd had it for a couple of months. I have, yes. And um, It's asthmatic, basically. I'm a chronic... Okay, well, I, the, the only reason, I mean, it's none, none of my business, I know, but I just said, have you had it checked out? Because um, since I got diagnosed five and a half years ago, I've got chemo tomorrow, you know, it's it's not a nice thing. And I wish... Uh, well, they hadn't got the screening then, but I wish I'd been screened because I can I could have done without, you know, got away without all this pain and operations and dozens and dozens of rounds of chemo and five yeah. operations and all that. So yeah. Anyway, I'm glad you've had it. So I had, you so said you said you had an X ray. Yes, good. I, I've had all that. And are you? Are, how are you feeling? Are you? Are you? I have basic. Well, at the moment, it's kind of like one good week, one bad week. Um, so this is 
going to be bad week <laughs> after this tomorrow. I, this is the highlight of your week, isn't <laughs> Right. Yeah, it goes downhill from now. Now, I go to the chemo clinic tomorrow. I have three days of chemo. I go home with a little pump. And as it goes into your body, it goes into a little implant I've got in my chest. And um, you just start feeling worse and worse and worse till about till Saturday, Sunday, Monday maybe, and I start feeling better and then go to work on Tuesday. So if you're feeling really rubbish in a couple of days' time, you can oh, scroll right. through your podcast and go, look, I'm on. <laughs> and, you can, you know, and, you, and you can listen to that. So The Burning Land uh, is George's novel. Uh, we've we've established the the main cast of characters, and um, and the centrality of land reform. Did it take you a while to find the ticking clock element? Because there's nothing more exciting in a. That's what every. Would first you think there's a ticking clock? Do you? Yeah, I think there's Isn't a rate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's certainly the fit. That's the feeling that I'm that I'm getting through the book. You know, it's a race against time. Yeah. You know, that you, and you said earlier they've got a certain amount yeah. of time to. They've got days. Um, it's interesting how that happened, though, actually. And look, I've only written one work of fiction, so I don't know how it happens. I wasn't conscious of it. I knew I had to get Lindy to South Africa. I, 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 I knew what was going on in her head. I knew what she thought she could be and what she wasn't at home. And I knew that 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 the thing that would make that journey possible was was something really big, and so that's why I came on, started looking at land and land grabs, and, and and then the 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 kind of ticking clock, as you put it, just kind of happened. Um, you know, I didn't have a plan for this book apart from. Can I say? say I mean, I, I don't know if that's a question you asked me, but. All I had was a series of pictures in my head, and I found the writing actually relatively easy because I just I just described the pictures in my head, and they kind of happened. I mean, subsequently I had to go back to the to get the plotting right and and so on and the timing right. I had to go back and change things, but that ticking clock element just kind of happened. Simon's mentioned the so the main cast of characters, and I have to say, George, part of the reason. Books that I really enjoy are books where you get peripheral characters who say something that 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 make you stop right there as you're reading, and and your book did that. There's I've mentioned that taxi driver who yeah. we don't see again, who no. who says something and straight away you're like, oh my goodness, yes. And there's another one that I want to talk to you about, and I, again I can't. I, he's so peripheral that I can't even remember well, the, the situation. <laughs> okay, but but he talks about um and it and it again stop me as I was reading it, he talked about how wearing it is when South Africa, the country where he lives, the country where he was born, is constantly defined as a struggle. Because that's, you know, you talk to anyone, certainly around my age, uh, growing up in the 70s and 80s, South Africa was just defined as it is the country of the struggle. And the number of times you've mentioned the word struggle in this in this interview so far. And I, I just wanted to explore that a little bit more because, as I say, th- th- this one character turns up, says that, I'm then st- disappears. I'm struggling to think who the character I is. Think, I think... I think it's at a funeral. I think it's at a funeral. And it's like it's an uncle who just happens to mention it. It's not really important who the character yeah. is. It's yeah. more what he's saying, which is that you've got um, you've got a country that uh, defined by everyone else as just being this struggle. How worrying that must be. If that's your country, if that's your yeah. day-to-day, 
I just want to live my life. I want I want to, you know, provide for my kids. I want to, you know, be with my family. But my entire existence is always going to be channeled for the rest of the world through this one word, which yeah. is struggle. And, and and that is a problem. And and you know, it it's it's one of the challenges and uh, of and limitations of journalism, certainly my kind of journalism. Because you only ever get sent to a place when 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 it's going down the toilet, don't you? So we we never go there and say, "Hey, the health service is mm. working really well in this place." Um, and having lived having lived in South Africa, having started my own personal journey journey in in the poor world, if I can call it that, um, it is it, it's like anywhere else. It's, there's lots of good things happening. There's lots of different things happening. There's light and shade, and so it's not just all black black and white. And that was definitely something. Though I can't remember the exact character. That was definitely something I wanted to portray in this book. That that um, it. it South Africa in particular, but the but the poor world in general shouldn't be. It isn't just in in that kind of that template we we have as journalists. And I mean, I'll give you a little anecdote. Um, and I'm, I'm going to massive name drop, but Nelson Mandela, who I, I <laughs> there you go, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, you know, and I did amazingly get to interview him twice, just me and him. And one of the things he 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 said to, and he you know he. He was a very gentle guy, but you could tell it was bloody steel there, and he had this massive forefinger kind of thing, and he sort of pointed it at you, and he said, the trouble with you, journalists, is that you observe from near, but you judge from afar. And what he was saying is, you know, when we want the story, we kind of get in there, please, so, you know, let, let us in, let us in, let's get really close, stick our cameras and people's faces into their huts, you know, whatever. And then at the end of the day, we go back to wherever, you know, whether it's a tent or, or the Hilton, um, and you start on the, on the old keyboard, we judge a country from our perspective, and it fits into a template. So it's much easier, black and white, struggle, no struggle, you know, that kind of thing. And I hope, I mean, one of the, my favourite bits of writing in, in this book is just, again, another little scene. It's at Park Station, probably the biggest transport hub in the continent. And it just captures, I tried to, capture that that kind of hour between you know dawn and when the stalls open you know and there's tripe being cooked and there's somebody selling sort of polyester brassiers and kind of all sorts of things because i wanted to show africa in that kind of its color and flamboyance and richness and yeah sure there's a struggle going on as well did you have to go back to fill in any of the details yeah or did you have it imprinted in your mind so solidly I had a lot of it, no, but I, I, I did go back. Um, my wife and I went back actually, and some of the times I was driving, she was taking notes, and other times she, you know, um, just to get get get, especially the rural areas, because for when I was there, South Africa was was essentially a political story. It was an urban story. Uh, and I was Africa editor, so or no, I wasn't Africa editor. I've just promoted myself. I, <laughs> I think I was just Africa correspondent. We didn't have editors in those days. We were Fergal Keane. Yeah, I know, I know, but <sighs> no, but <laughs> no, but you see, I mean, there's there's sort of grade inflation going on because actually, we, there weren't any Africa editors. We were just all reporters, which is actually what I'm proudest of being. I'm very happy to be called a reporter. Anyway, so I spent a lot of my time. I was Africa reporter, so I spent a lot of my time outside South Africa. So I did need to go back. And we spent some time in Mpumalanga province, which is this kind of eastern province, quite poor province. And I drove around there. I obviously, when I was a correspondent, I had a car, quite a nice car, German car, um, which um, came with a job. So I had went back and actually started using the transport that um, locals would use in Joburg. So there's a lovely scene there, I think, of getting in one of these so-called taxis. 
and stuff. So, yeah, I have to go back. And do you feel, if Nelson Mandela was pointing his finger at you, that you could say that you haven't judged from back home, that you've judged I, from close up? I, th- I think so. I think so. I think I am with there with Cahiso. Um I, I think I understand Cahiso. There's bits of me in Cahiso. I, I, I'm, I, I sat next to him in that, you know, when he gets in his in the taxi. Um, I was with him when he when he when he thinks about the limitations of protest and how protest can go wrong and so on. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I'm I'm comfortable that I that I've taken sides. Is there any part of you that's in Lindy as well? The diffidence thing, I think, and, and there's a bit in Cahiso there too. Yeah, that that ability to 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 be able to reinvent yourself. I mean, I've had to do it. I mean, Simon, you, you know, you're looking at me. I'm, I'm as English as you are. You know, we just happen to have different skin color. But you know, when I came here when I was 11, um, you know, I had quotes, kind of like a funny accent uh, and stuff like that. So I've, I've changed. I've ex- you know been able to explore a different side of me. Um, so yeah, there's there's a, there's a bit of me in, in Lindy that that ability to discover yourself. Um, I think I was fascinated by. I just want to bring us back um, full circle here, George, because we started by talking about the, the, the effectively the land grab that's going on. Yeah. Um, I'm, there's an anecdote, and I can't remember where I read this. I think this was in a book uh, years ago about a guy who uh, wanted to cycle from the northernmost tip of Africa right down to the bottom of South Africa. And he was going to raise money and, you know, I'm going to go entirely on my cycle and, you know, across the deserts on my cycle, that kind of thing. And so he set off and did it. And when he was interviewed afterwards, he was, you know, asked the obvious questions, which is how on earth did you get through all those, you know, Saharan deserts on on your bike? And he said, very easily, because I spent 99% of my time on tarmac roads. And the reason for that, he said, is that every... 10 miles or so, you would you would pass a sign that said, this road provided to you by the People's Republic of China. This road provided for you by the People's Republic of China. And basically, this was a means of, you know, obviously providing roads, but was quite clearly as well, these external countries with yeah. resources buying up land in Africa. So I suppose the reason why I'm bringing this round is because I, I'm interested with your uh, with your Africa editor stroke reporter head on, is where you see the future for this. Is this is this now just going to be, in 20 years' time, that those countries, those, play, those people with resources are going to continue to just buy up land in that country? Yeah, now the, the Chinese thing is in, is important to get it right actually because that road building is part of their their what they would I guess call their kind of aid program. Though actually it isn't quite often it isn't the aid program as you and I see it and the way our country you know we're really brilliant and a lot of respect for the aid program from people uh, in Africa and elsewhere because it's quite often loans and soft loans and so on, but but it's part of their influence building. But, yeah, you get you know you go to stadiums. That's the other thing they do. I mean, half the places where you can watch football in China now, I think, are built by the Chinese. It, it's it, That's about influence and getting the uh, thing. There is another process as well, which, as I say, as a journalist, I never quite nail, but everybody talks about, is they are also just buying land in order to be able to try and grow stuff and you know get get, get the combine harvesters rolling through them and and so on. And yeah, that that's happening. I think um, 
there are people who are writing about this in Africa who understand what, what's going on. I mean, my own take on this, and if you like, the burning land, I think, is just kind of like the first skirmishes in white, what we might see in a kind of eco-wars, because this stuff is going to get worse, isn't it? I mean, as a climate catastrophe comes in, as, as the temperatures start raging, as less and less around, land around the world becomes arable, people will gravitate towards those bits of the world where, where you still can farm. So I think we're in for, in for a rocky ride and, and, and African countries and African people will, will, will see this happening. And not just Africa, actually, it'll be in parts of Asia, parts of South America where you can grow. I think there is going to be a competition for land. Uh, I have two final questions. One of them <laughs> is fair and the other one is, is less so. Okay. The, fair, the fair question is one of the reasons... I, when I, a lot of the close-up detail which you've talked about, which I think people will enjoy and know that they're in the hands of an expert, is you talk, and I think the accent, I think the dialect is Shangan, yeah. the dialect of, of the Songa people. And I, and I love those little, I shared a room at university with uh, a friend from uh, Swaziland. Okay. And he taught me some Saswati. And I was hoping there might be some Saswati in this, but there isn't. But, but it's uh, just those little glimpses of the way people speak. It's not all, it's not all the same, you know, and you yeah. just, and you think only you, or someone who has your experience would come up with a character speaking in Shangan. Well, I mean, you know, I have roamed around Africa for a long, long time. And before I, I joined the BBC, I was, oh, now I know where it came from. I was Africa editor of South Magazine. That's where it came from. There it is. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's all coming back. To it's, you. All coming, it's all coming back. <clears throat> um, so I've been around and I've been to, as a, you know, Mozambique. I've, I've been there loads of times as, as a reporter. But the other thing I did, um, you know, you hear these things. I never got to speak, learn Zulu or because I can't even do the click. Um, so if I spoke to you now in Saswati, you wouldn't know what I'm no, saying? No, La no. Lagache Magine Baba. No, I don't. See, I'm, I'm see you later. See own... you later. What does Gakhle? it mean? La Lagache Magine Baba. Baba is your um, referring to me as a friend, elder brother. Type. I think. Well, if I remember right, it means good night, mother and father. Okay. Wow. Oh, Baba. Okay. So Marking your Baba is mother and father. Right. And Lala Gahi. I mean, how useful but, is that? But it's what, not useful <laughs> at all. <laughs> but Sorry. what I what I did do, what I did do. So I, you know, the way urban um, South, black South Africans talk. You know, I said brew and all, all this guy. I, I could hear it in my head, but I had to be sure I'd heard it right. So what I did was. There's a great uh, friend of mine and colleague, a uh, guy called uh, Milton and Cozy uh, at the Beam. And I just sent the book to him and said, tell me if I'm making an idiot of myself. And he said, no, you're cool. And he corrected me in a couple of places. But okay. um, um, so I'd, I'd, I could, again, I could hear all these stuff, this stuff, and I knew it. But I had to make sure it was authentic. So that's the fair question. Yeah. And here's the slightly unfair question. Oh, good. Question. This is what I want. Yeah. Oh, dear. Right at the very beginning, yeah. although it's page five, <laughs> you you talk about the death of Lissetti as one of the pivotal moments that change a nation's trajectory. Yeah. Okay, so using that sentence, I'm just going to apply that to the UK. Yeah. As a journalist, yeah. do you feel that we are going through, and I know you've, you're a BBC journalist, so there's a limit to it. You can't go off on one. But I just wonder whether you feel as though that's what the UK is going through at the moment. Well, no question. I, I, I think it is. There's a massive, massive decision to be made, um, and there was that incredible vote back in 2016, June 23rd. I remember it so well. Massive decision to be made. I mean, the only comment I would I would say about it, and I think um, this applied to both sides of the argument. I wish it could have been carried out in in uh, a less sort of with less rancor. Um, 
and that we had able to talk about. I think we've lost something in the process. I'm absolutely of the opinion that whichever way it goes, once we get over this, you know, we're going to be fine. Um, you know, pe people often assume I'm kind of really pessimistic because of the places I've been to. And I, I can tell you, I've been to places where it gets a lot worse than what we're going through now. And they come through it. People, you know, re regain their dignity and, and their and, and their humanness. And I think, you know, Britain is capable of that. So, yeah, pivotal moment. Um but it's a shame we, we've conducted ourselves at times, I think, in, in ways in which I think if we really looked at I'm talking about politicians, talking about me with the arguments I have with my friends and so on, conducted ourselves in ways we um, probably should regret. Another novel? Something I'd, lo I'd love to. The thing is, I'm kind of bad, you know, I, this health thing is difficult because I really don't know what, you know, I just live from scan to scan. I got one at the end of this month. Um, I've got ideas. Um, I think, I don't know what, well, you guys have read the book. I mean, I think it's about lots of things, but it's about also rich world, poor world. And I'm beginning to understand more as I go, grow older that, that I'm more conscious of that journey that I made. I mean, from poor world to rich world. And and, and I, I don't think I, there's lots more to be said about that juxtaposition where the two clash. Sometimes beautifully, as it is, you know, with my wife, Frances, who's English, as English as they come, you know, daughter of a Sussex lawyer. Um, I mean, what an amazing, amazing juxtaposition that's turned out to be, you know, got a nice family, got a granddaughter, something. Sometimes it doesn't work, you know, uh, and, and there is horrible. And I can see again, and I saw a glimpse, have we got time? It's a quick thing. The, do you remember when the fires happened in Brazil recently and Monsieur Macron was getting all kind of exercised by it? And at one point he turned around and said, our house is burning, like in six, seven words. He'd appropriated the whole of the bloody Amazon for, 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 for us, for the rich world. And without any sense of history. And so Jair Bolsonaro, who and I know I'm a BBC journalist, but I don't have much in common with the man. Yeah. But he turned around and said, you know, you're speaking with a colonial mentality. Well, I'm sort of with Bolsonaro on that. You can't just, having wrecked the planet, because we're the ones who did most of the emissions, then suddenly when when things start going bad and saying, oh, by the way, that forest is ours, and we you know put it out for our sakes. Do you know what I mean? There's a, there's a, there's a clash of cultures coming, and I think it'll I think it'll become really obvious once this climate thing gets going, because I think the poor countries of the world have every right to say, well, you caused it, we want to develop. There's 800 million Africans who need a fridge. There's 800 million Africans who need trans better transport. There's about the same number of Indians who need it. You know, what are you going to say to us? Are you going to pay us to do that? You know, if you, we, you know, we don't want a wrecked planet, but you're going to have to pay for some of this. I think George has got a lot Sorry, of material just... there for another book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. <laughs> Uh, well, we wish you a, a good week, even Thank though you. You, even though there's some bad stuff happening. But we wish you, a, you know, a healthy week. Thanks very much. George Alagaya's book is The Burning Land. Well, that was George Alagaya talking about the Burning Land, and uh, I think he enjoyed the freedom to say a few cuss words. He did, there. didn't he? He was a little bit blue. He was, was and I would quite like him to promote his own book when he's on the telly. Yes. On the news at six o'clock, my book is <laughs> my, out. My book's out and is great. In other news... Brexit. Uh, <laughs> still going on, like my book. Unaccountably. We're not anyway, drinking our own wee yet. Uh, we're, we're going to... 
very good. We'll be back very soon. That's all we can say with some very, very top-rated guests. Hang on. It's Lee Child. Lee is Child. Be our next well done, guest. producer there. Come he's, away from his Ocado shopping to tell us what's next. He's done all right, hasn't he, Lee yeah. Child? Lee's doing very well. What's the name of his new book? It's called Blue Moon. Ridiculous title. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have many episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.